you know, cults aren't usually started by a cult leader. Cults are started by the true believers who come later. You know what I mean? And and I think that's, if Noma is a sort of pretentious food cult to some, it's not Noma's fault. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. Yes, yes, yes. Dana Brown is here for an entertaining and mildly gossipy episode. I've long followed Dana's career at Vanity Fair, where he served many roles during his over 20 years at the magazine. Dana has published a page-turning memoir, Delatante, and we dive into his story, which starts with him working at the legendary Condé Nast Cafeteria, that's big air quotes there, 44, where he was scooped up by a young magazine editor, Graydon Carter, to serve as his assistant. Dana talks about so many things in this episode— editing A.A. Gill, food at the legendary Vanity Fair Oscars party, sushi in New York in the 90s, trashing the Jean George restaurant 66, we, we go into that at length, the Grading Carter lunch order, which is funny to talk about in context to the Anna Wintour lunch order, which has made news recently, the power of a Waverly Inn reservation, and finally Keith McNally versus the world, including Graydon Carter. This is a super fun conversation. I hope you enjoy getting to know Dana Brown a bit. Dana Brown, welcome to the Taste Podcast. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you. Uh, you're not necessarily a food media person, which, we, you know, honestly, we talk to a lot of editors and writers in food media, but you held a, an incredible uh, role at Vanity Fair, and you also edited some great food writers in, uh, in in our history of food writing. So I wanted, that's why I wanted to invite you, but I also love your book, Delatant. Like, dude, great book. Thank you. You're, you're so kind. And, and you know, the, the food thing... You know, I did get my start in restaurants, and and you know, then I made this switch when I became an editor at Condé Nast, and then I ate in a lot of restaurants. Yeah, um, and and food has always actually been a passion of mine. It's the way I unwind at the end of the day by cooking and and opening a nice bottle of wine. Um, it's it's an important part of my life. Yeah, I I I, I get that from reading this great book, and, and it is a little media dish, it, but it does have a lot of great food. There's a fight at a restaurant that I, I, I could get into that I loved. I loved that moment. But let's get into your work at 44. You're working as a bartender in 1992 at this kind of um, popular, semi-legendary watering hole for the Condé Nast. Uh, org um, and a guy named Graydon Carter, editor, longtime editor in chief of Vanity Fair, uh, scooped you up to be his assistant. So I wanted to set up the background um, of that job working at Forty Four. I think some of our listeners might know about Forty Four. Yeah, you know, I think as I wrote in the book, you know, Forty Four exists in name and location, but that's really about it. Um, <laughs> it, it was essentially torn down. 44 was a restaurant, and boy, there's a lot of backstory here, so, so you know, <laughs> buckle in and, and give me a little space. Um, 44 was a restaurant uh, uh, on 44th Street, 44 West 44th Street. Um, it, was, it was the lobby and restaurant on the ground floor of the Royalton Hotel. And the Royalton Hotel was, was owned by Ian Schrager, and of course Ian Schrager, you know, Studio 54, you know, this sort of mythic... Mr. Big. Yes, this sort of mythic New York figure who who just always seemed to sort of crack the zeitgeist. Um, 
And he got into hotels after after serving some time in prison, um, famously with his partner Steve Rebell. They opened a hotel called uh, Morgan's down on Madison Avenue, and I think thirty sixth. And and it essentially invented the boutique hotel. This was a new thing. This was a smaller hotel. It was cooler. The lighting was dimmed. There were cool photographs on the walls. You know, it it wasn't a Hilton. They they succeeded. Uh, I think that opened in the mid eighties, and then in the late eighties they opened the Royal. Hilton on 44th uh, and the Paramount Hotel across Times Square. They had hired uh, a, a young French designer named Philippe Stark to design the buildings. And no one. I mean, crazy yeah, yeah, style. Like, yeah. just like absolutely tore up every norm I, for hotel design. It, it, it was it was like walking through a piece of art. Yeah. You know, and, and he had an incredible vision and an incredible eye. And, and, the Royalton, you know, you would walk into that lobby and just go, what is this? You didn't know if it was old. You didn't know if it was new. You didn't know if it was from the future. You couldn't quite figure it out. Um, so Schrager, Schrager would lease out the restaurants and, and lobby food and drink service to restaurateurs. And he brought in a, a man named Brian McNally. In, in the early 90s, I think he'd burned through a few other restaurateurs. Mm-hmm. Um, Brian's claim to fame at that point was opening the Odeon uh, about a decade earlier with his brother Keith in Tribeca, which still is iconic. and Still and so, serves an okay stick of poivre, I, I believe. Listen, I, I, get have, it. I love the Odeon. I'm <laughs> yeah. happy anytime I'm at the Odeon, which is maybe once a week. Um, yeah. And so Brian, you know, he brought in this cool downtown restaurateur. And Brian had also uh, recently opened Indochine, uh, another another sort of classic downtown mm-hmm. New York restaurant that still exists today. Um, Brian is is not involved with either of those anymore. And actually, neither is his brother Keith, Keith. McNally. And I'm sure Keith's name will come up again. Mm-hmm. But Brian was super connected. You know, Brian from the Odeon and from Indochine, it was like he was super connected in that sort of downtown art world, fashion, media scene. And, you know, it was savvy of Schrager to bring him to Midtown because mm-hmm. it turned – there was nothing – Midtown was dead. You know, Times Square was still dangerous. There was nothing in Midtown. There weren't even tourists mm-hmm. coming to New York at that point. It was mm-hmm. really dangerous. And Brian took it over, and right around the corner from 44 was the publishing company Condé Nast at 350 Madison Avenue. And Brian was very good friends with Anna Winter. You know, they're two expats who had moved here around the same time. They were very close. Anna said to Brian, like, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll come there for lunch. Yeah, sure, I'll come for lunch there every day. I mean, she what. was probably really stoked. I mean, to having a, an actual, like, reputable restaurant guy opening a, a, around the corner. A hundred percent. And, you know, Anna, at that point, I think she was hired at Vogue in 88. And, you know, she'd been there for a couple of years, but she was a star editor. She wasn't. She wasn't mm-hmm. Devil Wears Prada, Nuclear Winter. You know, she wasn't <laughs> that yet, but in, in a sort of sexy industry um, she was it. And so the second she showed up and, and there were four banquettes lining the back wall and, you know, she showed up for lunch one day and then everybody showed up for lunch and, and it became known as the Condé Nast cafeteria. And it was, it was Tina Brown, uh, Cy Newhouse, who, who was a sort of media mogul who, who owned Condé Nast. And uh, eventually in 1992, a young editor named Graydon Carter, who had just taken over Vanity Fair. It, 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 you know, to it's so hard to describe what 44 was because it will just sound like most places now. Mm-hmm. But it really was this, this, you know, they had breakfast, they had lunch, they had dinner. 
They had a post-theater scene for people getting out of the theater, and then they had this late-night scene. It sort of became a nightclub. And so it was this, like, almost 24-hour party. And depending on the time of day, it was something very different. You know, breakfast was very quiet. You know, it was was a few businessmen staying at the – businessmen and, mm-hmm. and women staying at the hotel. Uh, lunch was the media hotspot. It was packed and buzzing and and full of recognizable I things. mean, one part you, you point out is that there was uh, a reserved seating chart, which also Michaels later on would have as well, famously. Yeah. Um, that's different. I don't think there are restaurants necessarily midtown right now. Obviously, yeah. I will say pre-pandemic, just to frame it that way. Yeah. Pre-pandemic even, there wasn't – I mean – these like media moguls are going to fucking sweet green. Yeah, no, uh, but you know? exactly. And and I saw that transition happen <laughs> later, and and I can talk about that a little too because because yeah. it's it's a really it's it was cool. a huge shift mm-hmm. um, in in the sort of end of the power lunch, the mm-hmm. end of the liquid lunch, which yeah. was sort of dying out. But but the Royalton became it. You know, during Fashion Week, it's where all the models and fashion designers stayed at the Royalton Hotel because it was the cool mm-hmm. place to be. And Bryant Park was a block away where they were doing Fashion Week. Yeah. Um, you know, rock stars would all stay there. I mean, when I was behind the bar there, uh, where I worked for about two years, um, you know, I served everyone from, you know, Duran Duran to Mick Jones from Mm -hmm. The Clash. Uh, Pete Townsend was there, uh, staying at the hotel a lot. It was like, it was, you know, in in the 70s, there was a hotel on the Sunset Strip called the Riot House. Mm -hmm. Famously, you know, Led Zeppelin would stay there. It was the Rock and Roll Hotel. And, and, the Royalton Hotel was kind of a version of that for the 90s, um, basically. So, I, I listen, I, I walked in there and and looking for a job. I had actually been working at Union Square Cafe. Yeah, you write about that. On 16th Street. I, I Danny was, was in the restaurant every day, Danny Meyer. Was, oh, Danny yeah. was – but it was – you know, when I was at – when I was there, it was the only restaurant he had. It was it. Yeah, exactly. It was his baby. It was his first, first second, and third love. Um, and I was hired somehow to be the nighttime pastry expediter, <laughs> which took no baking skills, but it was plating and it was yeah. making things look beautiful. And I, and I think there were, you know, four or five, five or six desserts. You know, there was a banana tart famously, uh, which, you know, you would, you would have to make a hundred of them a day. Was Claudia Fleming there? No. Not Claudia yet? Fleming, I don't think yeah, so. Yeah, yeah, okay. No. There, there was, oh God, there, the, the pastry chef when I started had come over from Coco Pazzo, which okay. is another another sort of downtown on 7th Avenue and, and uh, 18th Street. Love it. But but so I, I was working in a kitchen, and at that, in those days, kitchens weren't what they are now. Cooking was not considered an art form. Yes, there were famous chefs. There was Julia Child on mm-hmm. television. Uh, you know, Jacques Pepin, like there, there mm-hmm. were famous chefs, but there weren't famous, like it, it wasn't, it wasn't considered an art form and, it, and it, yeah. it wasn't considered a successful career. And they were kind of rough places, you know, very stressful work, uh, working in, in kitchens. And also you got paid shit. Mm-hmm. Like I, I, I was making so little money, which weirdly back in, in 1990. One and two, you could afford to live in New See, York. See, that's it, no it, it kind of evened out a little yeah, bit more yeah. than now. But like, so Graydon walks in, or at least walked in several times. New, got to know you behind the bar. So, what's the moment, um, briefly, about when you uh, and him linked up for the job? Connected. Yeah. Well, so I started as a bar back, um, mm-hmm. and I was actually underage. I think I was nineteen <laughs> years old when I was hired, so I technically legally couldn't serve booze. Mm-hmm. Um, and then eventually they started giving me some weekend day shifts, which was literally nobody. 
Uh, and then I would occasionally get some lunch shifts. And so I was able to see this this world, uh, this sort of media. I'd always heard about it, but yeah. I never worked during the days. And so I saw it and I got to know who, you know, Graydon Carter, Tina Brown, Anna Winter. Like I, I, yeah. I started to know who people were and understand sort of how that universe worked. Um, you know, a lot of these editors used Brian and 44, 44 – you know, by the way, the chef at 44 at that point was a young chef named Jeffrey Zakarian. Mm -hmm. And, <laughs> you know, and a brilliant chef actually. I mean this was – this was early days and, and, you know, he brought in French techniques but sort of made it this own menu. Uh, I think he was the first person – and he might not have been – I'm going to give Jeffrey credit – there was a $20 hamburger on the dinner menu um, and lunch menu, which was kind of unheard of. To I mean, it's like $80 now. Yeah, I mean, pretty yeah, much. Yeah. Or but at least it was, the optics. But it was yeah. the first time yeah. that like that a fine dining establishment had a hamburger mm, on its menu. I see what you're saying. And it was really good. Yeah. And it was served on an English muffin. Um, I, I still I can think about the the saltiness and the like how great it yeah, was. Yeah, respect the English muffin. I, I think that's yeah. never really used anymore. I remember back in the early two thousands, New York yeah. had the the English muffin burger boom, yeah. and then we kind of went to like potato rolls, yeah. and then we went to Portuguese East rolls, Portuguese rolls. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now we're gluten free rolls. I, I listen. I'm giving Jeffrey Zakarian all the credit you should. for 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 the uh, uh, English muffin with the burger. Um, but so Brian Brian would cater these small dinners at the editor's house. Houses at Anna's house, I, I assume Tina Brown's and Graydon's, and Graydon uh, had just moved into the Dakota uh, yeah. up on Seventy Second and and uh, on the West Side, and I became part of this crew that would go to his apartment and do these dinners, and I was sort of the 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 back office guy, you know, making sure there were enough glasses, running down to the basement, the spooky basement of the Dakota to to you know get get more glasses mm -hmm. or get more plates or we need more silverware. Um, you know, and I probably did four or five of those. And one day I got a call at home from Brian McNally who said, Graydon Carter wants to interview you to be his assistant. I was like, what are you talking yeah. about? Like me? Um, you weren't a writer I at that point. I, I was nothing. I was yeah. like playing in punk, like punk yeah. rock bands downtown. I was yeah. living in the East Village. I was like, I, I, I was a little rough. Yeah. Like, you know, this, this world, I was like, what are you talking about? I went to college for like literally three weeks before yeah. I was like, this is not my thing. <laughs> yeah, I love what you write about your college experience. And it, the book is in Delton is definitely worth hearing about your early days. But I wanted to get into your early career with Graydon Carter. But you bring up Anna Wintour, and I have to ask you, you know, right now uh, we there's a memoir or biography, an unauthorized biography yeah, of Anna Amy Wintour. Amy O'Dell book. Yeah. Amy O'Dell book. And I uh, I think it got a little a little noise about this, this Anna Wintour lunch uh, that she had quote unquote every day. Uh, it was a steak and caprese salad with uh, without tomatoes, which is kind of insane yeah. uh, to yeah. think about at the, from the palm. So uh, I'm I'm sure she had that lunch. I'm sure she did not have it every day. But my yeah. question is: for you were Graydon's assistant, you were hired soon after this meeting. Did Graydon have a lunch? I you know what's funny is is and and uh, Anna Winter when she would dine at forty four and my guess is that the palm was her takeout you know office desk eating lunch. exactly yeah. good yeah framing it yeah um, the, her desk lunch. I mean I couldn't imagine Anna going to the palm no but, uh, um, <laughs> no it was, it was only for for the desk lunch. yeah yeah Hi, you know it's funny we we went through stages like he went through <laughs> stages like I remember there was a sushi stage for a long time and there was a, a really really high end sushi restaurant on forty fifth street. Mm -hmm. uh, called Hatsuhana. I think it's been gone for years. And mm -hmm. and I used to go and get that every day, 
if he was eating in and and I would order lunch for myself. I mean, it was like, you know, a hundred dollars worth of wow. like Toro and and like in you know, I was getting like uni and like I was it was amazing. Did know? he have a uh, you fly he buy policy for I, his assistance? I mean basically, but but Condé Nast had a had a paying for lunch policy anyway. Not not a hundred dollars worth of sushi. Um but but you know, it was. I think he went through like a, a long tuna roll period <laughs> of, of you know trying to be healthy, and then you know, and then it's you know now we we you know we talked mentioned before about Sweet Green and and all these chains of sort of you know customizable. I don't even know what you call them, but more upscale than fast food and mm, and kind and, of. And there was one called Dishes oh, that of opened in the late '90s, and it, I remember it was kind of the first of its kind, as far as I knew. And it was right – it was a half a block away from Condé Nast in between Grand Central and 350 Madison. And then that became our thing. Like that was like – it was just full of Condé Nast assistants mm-hmm. going out and fetching lunches. And it was – you know, I think it was the first time I saw a wrap. Oh, like, yeah. What's a wrap? No, Dishes and, was doing like, you know, bagels and cream cheese but yeah. in an interesting way, yeah. a little twist yeah. on it. Yeah, it was it. slightly yeah. upscale yeah. And, and slightly interesting. And so Dishes sort of became our, go, our go-to our go I think for everyone at Condé Nast. I love – I used to go to the Dishes in Grand Central. Central yeah. I took the train up. So I want to zoom out a bit because our listeners who may be younger are like, okay, magazine editor making this kind of money and having this kind of power and like, you know, e- eating $100 worth of Toro. I mean, now if you look at media, certainly not. Yeah. Uh, it's yeah, yeah, certainly yeah. different. Um, I think I've I've been doing this for about 20 years and I've seen both sides. And, you know, I'm not saying one yeah. side is, is better than the other. But I want to zoom out and kind of ask you, uh, you know, the Vanity Fair editor held this kind of power. Yeah. Like uh, why at that time in their late early 90s were magazines so influential? Well, A, remember no internet. No phones. Right. Bingo. No, okay, so the, Bingo. none of that stuff existed. Um, if you were a luxury advertiser, where do you go? You needed to find places to advertise your products. And I'm talking about, you know – the Louis Vuittons of the world, mm-hmm. the Dior's, the you know these these high end, uh, you know brands. You want to find a highly targeted high end audience, and that is what Condé Nast delivered. Condé Nast delivered, you know, it and 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 it sort of it scaled it. You know, mm-hmm. it scaled it, and and who was actually reading the magazines was sort of a mystery. And you that go was, into that. Well, that was that was always sort of the smoke and mirrors of it. Is you know we our circulation was was you know, a, a million and a quarter or something like that combination of, of newsstand sales and uh, subscriptions. But there was no data. Mm-mm. We just had names and addresses. We just had a, a final number of what we sold on newsstands. And so there was a lot of smoke and mirrors in that business model uh, for forever, by the way. Mm-hmm. I'm sure the, the time everyone was doing it like, well, this is who our reader is. Mm-hmm. But they really didn't know. Just like really good salespeople. I think really having good, it yeah. extremely talented yes. Yes. and persuasive and, you know, courting yeah. the yeah. ad buyers, yeah. you know, it's the oldest game yeah. in the book. Right? And, and creating this highly curated world yeah. that that was very broad culturally you know but but felt like like necessary reading for a certain subset of people yeah. maybe mostly on the coasts but then that sort of spreads and it becomes aspirational to everybody oh, else yeah. you know uh, but it, it really was luxury advertisers had nowhere else to go and so we we built a platform mm-hmm. for them and that's why we were so successful yeah and the 90s in particular you know where luxury you know the economy yeah. was relatively healthy yeah. 
no internet. Yeah, Tom Ford took over Gucci in the yeah. early nineties and yeah. like and that was the beginning of of celebrities crossing over. You know, I remember Madonna at the at the MTV Awards, movie awards or music awards saying Gucci, Gucci, Gucci. Yeah. You know, it was like suddenly movie stars and the fashion world came together and Vanity Fair was like perfectly placed to sort of put these two things together. And it and we became even more powerful because of that. Feels like ancient history now. Yeah. Um, but I wanted to steer it back to food because with this power um, and, and being based in New York City came, you know, the most crazy dinner invites. I'm sure yeah. you you went out with really interesting artists and celebrities, et cetera. So let's go over a couple like memorable dinners that you've had. We did a lot of we did a lot of dinners and we did a lot of parties um, and we became kind of known for that. It, ultimately, and I, I think our first Oscar party was in 94 and that was sort of the beginning of, you know, it would grow and grow and grow and grow and become this kind of cultural behemoth um, and almost as famous as the magazine. I think people knew about the Oscar party without knowing what Vanity Fair was. Mm-hmm. Um Mm. Always Wolfgang Puck too, right? Oh, oh, no, I don't know. We never – I don't think we – Wolfgang Puck always does the governor's ball. Oh, shit. Okay. We, I, my we, mistake. My, we, I stayed, you know, can't stand at, corrected. Yeah, at first we did it at a place called Morton's um, in yeah. West Hollywood and it was just their chef serving you know, whatever <laughs> he was serving. And then later on we started bringing in chefs and, and – um, yeah, I mean, we had some big chefs. I I'm think sure. we had Jeffrey Zakarian do it a yeah. few times. You know, we had some big chefs. So let's there. talk about some of these dinners you've had, because I know you 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 write about, uh, you know, even as early as, as 95, you were going out with all sorts of interesting people. Yeah, I, you know, well, first of all, the 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 big and, and one of the first chapters I wrote, and I actually wrote it to, and it helped sell the book, I think, was a, a dinner, you know, one, I mentioned before that I was working these parties at Graydon's apartment in the Dakota, mm-hmm. and one of these dinners, someone didn't show up. And he said, you have to come sit at my table. And I was like, no. I was like, I had literally just started weeks earlier. And I was like panicked. And not only that, but like the guys serving me would have been, were my friends who I was just working with a few weeks ago from 44. Um, and so he, he made me come and sit down and I sat down and there was a woman to my left and a woman to my right. And uh, the dinner was in honor of Dan Rather who was sitting at the table. And actually his wife, Jean, was next to me. And so I sat down in, a, in an utter panic and just sort of tried to drink my way through it, um, mm-hmm. which became a pattern. And, and you know, I should give a little backstory. Is this, this was the moment. This was the spring. It was, it was April um, or, or early May, I can't remember, of 94. And Jackie Onassis, who was maybe one of the most famous New Yorkers at that point, was, was dying of cancer. She was across the park in her apartment on Fifth Avenue. Uh, little did I know that her sister Lee Radswell was at this dinner, um, and of course, pre cell phone, pre everything, the the phone rings about three quarters of the way through dinner, and the woman sitting next to me had excused herself and said, "You know, I need to go. I have to go deal with a, a family issue." And I said, "Well, very nice to meet you." I had no idea what her name was, and the phone rang, and Graydon sort of gave me a look, the house phone, and oh, I'm his assistant. I should go in. So I ran, and I said, "Carter residence," and a, a serious sounding man on the other end of the line said. Uh, we're looking for Lee Radswell. It's an emergency. And I was like, Lee Radswell, Lee Radswell. I had no idea who mm-hmm. Lee Radswell was. I had no idea uh, anything. I didn't know who anyone was. And the easy way out for this was to just be like, uh, oh, that woman that was sitting next to me, that must have been her. I bet I, she – and I said, she just – she left about 10 minutes ago. And the guy said, OK, thank you so much and hung up the phone. And, you know, dinner ended. They cleared the tables out, drinks and cigarettes. This is when people still smoked mm-hmm. and smoked indoors in people's apartments. Um, 
you know, and, and I was standing by Graydon and a woman was walking out, and this is a few hours later, and Graydon said, oh, Dana, this is uh, meet Lee Radswell. And I was like, oh, Lee Rat, that's funny. There was a call. Mm-hmm. I was like, shit, I shouldn't. And I was like, very nice to meet you. And she walked out, and I still didn't quite know who she was or connect it. And as she walked out, Graydon whispered, that's Jackie O's sister. And I was like, oh, fuck. And, <laughs> and Jackie O died that night. Oh, my. And I could never, I to this day, I wouldn't tell that story to anybody for years because I was like, I'm going to get fired. I'm yeah. going to get fired. I'm going to get fired. Um, I, I don't know if she made it across town to see her. or. Like, but, you know, I they had a know. really tough relationship, yes. too. Yes. So, you, you so know. I felt even Give more, us... but I felt even more oh, guilty that she might have been like, the last. Maybe that was going to be the moment where they mended, you know, years and years of I love that story. Rivalry. And then your book is full of these of these great stories. It makes it just, it's absolutely compelling copy. And I want to go back to L.A. because I'm curious about Los Angeles from the mid-90s when yep. you were going there all the time to even current day. I'm not, I don't yeah. need to dwell on current day, but like what were, what was LA like, like in the mid nineties to like the mid two thousands in terms of the restaurants you were going to the scene? Cause it, you know, we talk about LA right now, um, as the, the, the kind of the heart of yeah. American food right Absolutely. now. It is really a beautiful yeah. city for yeah. food, but it's, it wasn't like that. In it, you know, it was, I mean, I, I, you know, it's funny. It's it's you think about how important Jonathan Gold was into the yeah. sort of discovery of Los Angeles food. When I started going out there, it was a food wasteland. I mean, it was. I, I, I honestly like I can't say like oh I used to go down to Koreatown like you wouldn't didn't even occur to you you wouldn't know where to go. Um, uh, you know where where would we go? I, I you know this is sad to say it's not sad to say but. I was staying in such nice hotels. I mean, I, for the first few years, it was the Bel Air Hotel, mm-hmm. which is one of the most beautiful hotels in the world. Then we moved to the Beverly Hills Hotel. I was like in my mid-20s at the Beverly Hills Hotel. I rarely left. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I would – I had – I could just sign my name. It was like a magic trick. Mm-hmm. I could sign my name and my room number at the end of this, this piece of paper <laughs> that sometimes added up to thousands of dollars and it would just like vanish and be taken care of. And I would literally, you know, when we were at the Beverly Hills Hotel, I would sit at the polo lounge. I would yeah. just sit at the polo lounge. I didn't care that a Caesar salad cost $27, which was absurd back then. But I would just sit there and and invite everyone I knew who couldn't afford to eat there normally, but friends, I'd be like, hey, look, I'm sitting in the second booth on the right. I'm going to be there from 7 p.m. till it closes, like come swing by. Mm-hmm. And it was just this massive wave of, of – it was just a part – and it was just, you know, if I wanted to order a, you know, a, a outrageously a $200 glass of cognac, I would. Mm-hmm. The You know, what's the best whiskey you have? Oh, it's $80 for a glass? I'll have a double. That was that yeah. was my life, and it was like why – and so I would sit there. I mean – and it really was – and it, it wasn't – I don't know. I'm trying to think when Jonathan Gold emerged. I think he emerged nationally at Gourmet. Um, well, he was at the LA he Weekly. He was the LA Weekly. Yeah. You know, critic for a long time, yeah. and then LA Times, and then I think around – I mean he was writing music, obviously. Yeah. That was his first you know, yeah. love but around, I would say, mid-90s is when yeah. he started getting a following. Yeah, and, and that was when, you know, that was when he started discovering it, – it, it's when he became a sort of the singular face of Los Angeles. Do you remember a meal outside of this kind of hotel hermetic 
seal a bubble that you were in that that in LA that that really knocked your socks off. I well, yes, uh, I do. And this is this is the other thing about LA in the '90s. It was like sushi heaven. Of like, course, this was this was the one thing where they had New York beat. And uh, there are theories for this. You know, LA is closer to Japan, so the fish was closer. Uh, it was easier for for Japanese chefs to get to LA, and so they would move to LA in mass. And New York was such a hard city to make it in. But I I I absolutely remember going to and and was it Matsushita? I, like I forget which one mm-hmm. it was, but it was like the new hot one that was impossible to get into. Mm-hmm. And I got in there because of the Vanity Fair name. Yeah. And I remember sitting at a sushi bar. And just being blown away mm-hmm. by fish I'd never heard of. I mean, yeah. You know, in the East Coast, it was still a very, like, tuna-based yeah. menu. And, and there weren't there, – there wasn't Hokkaido uni coming in from Japan. Like, yeah. there wasn't this stuff. And I just remember really just being like, holy – like, this is sushi. I mean, my theory is Sony and Toyota. I mean, are based uh, yeah. there. And I, I think, you know, especially down – like, Toyota yeah. had a, a real presence in Southern California. Yeah. In Torrance, so I think um, that coupled with the fact that the diaspora, Japanese yeah. American diaspora, is very strong there. Yeah. Um, yeah, weather was better. Obviously, if you're coming from Japan, you're yeah. you're having four seasons, and it's nice to have sunny weather yeah. all the yeah. time. Um, same with Korean, uh, the diaspora, Korean diaspora yeah. landed in LA for that but, reason. But you know, you that's such a great point that I really never thought of was that the Japanese. The Japanese economy was like a monster yeah. in in the eighties and nineties, and they were buying things up, movie mm-hmm. studios, like they were. And so that's interesting. It never occurred to me to sort of cater to this yeah. these Japanese business sensibilities. It's great. Well, I want to you know get into the journalism because yeah. you are. I mean, you're very modest in in many ways in the book and and self effacing. But I think your journalism is top notch, and you yeah. you've edited many of the. I think some of the, the many of the top writers in our field, and one of those writers is Adrian Gill, oh, who you write lovingly he's about. Still, my heart. Yes. I, I I got to meet him uh, late in his life uh, at when I was working at Zero Point Zero, yeah. and he uh, what a what a tremendous talent. It's a singular, singular talent voice, too. yeah. And 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 you know, I've seen people try to do what he does. Um, and it was not easy. You know what I mean? He, it, it's funny because in many ways I feel like he was to restaurant criticism what Jonathan Gold was to Los Angeles food. You know, just this mm-hmm. thing. It's like, what is he talking about? No mm-hmm. one's ever done this before. Um, I, I met Adrian, uh, you know, I, I in the early 2000s. Actually in 2000 is when I met him. You know, I, I was an, an editor. I was editing the sort of front of the book section, which means sort of smaller pieces. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't editing features yet, um, you know, writing a lot of little things. But I had my own little world. And you would get these notes from from Graydon, which would be a ripped out magazine or newspaper something or other, or like a hand-scrawled written thing on a napkin. It would just be like, let's discuss this. <laughs> let's discuss and and I got a page from the time, Sunday Times in the UK, and it was a restaurant review, and it was a, a review of I'll, I'll never forget. It was the Connaught Hotel had just reopened its restaurant, mm. and this writer A. A. Gill was the byline writing for the Times of London. I had no idea who he was, just utterly trashed it. Mm-hmm. Like it was 
so funny. I but mean, in the fully British way of trashing oh, it, not nothing like no parlor tricks, no, like no. real, like just no. dry and sarcastic. Yes, but but also, but like, but but also pointing out its flaws yeah. and why he was doing it, and it was never so much about the food with Adrian, which was a, a really interesting turn. He wasn't a reviewer that would go to a restaurant. And just start the review by saying, I walked in, my table was, uh, the silverware was this, uh, yeah. and the amuse-bouche was this, 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 and it had a salty mouthfeel, and I mm-hmm. blah, 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 blah. He didn't really write about the food very much. Mm-mm. He gave the restaurant cultural context. Yeah. I- it, you know, what? What is what is this and what does it mean? And the food was almost an afterthought. I mean, he would write about the food, and, and he would trash restaurants where he thought the food was pretty good, and and he would praise restaurants where he didn't think the food was pretty good because he thought it worked for what it meant to be. One of the, the famous A.A. Gill reviews was for, for Le Louis. Yes. Right, and, and and I think at the time that dropped, and you were the editor on that yeah, piece, I yeah, imagine. Yeah, um, you He called you, it the worst restaurant in the world. And the kicker, it's <laughs> worth a link to it. The kicker alone is a wonderful kicker, and uh, – you know, he wrote about the fries. They taste of seared and overused cooking oil. Great. And he talks about the salad. Uh, They've been doused in vinegar that may have been recycled from a gherkin bottle. Like, <laughs> I love uh, a, a good negative review. And, yeah. the, and the, for context, and you can go into it too, it's yeah. like this was definitely the most exclusive restaurant in Paris. At the time, people always wrote about it, like, don't tell your friends yes. about this restaurant, which yes. is, you know, infuriating yes. when you t- think about it. Like, you're, you're talking about a restaurant that you're not supposed to tell people about. It's so yeah. good. Yeah. Like, go fuck yourself. Like, yes. truly. But talk about this review. Well, I'll talk about that review. And, you know, Vanity Fair didn't do restaurant reviews. We did. We had never done a restaurant review <laughs> until funny. until 2003 um, in New York, and I'll get to Lemmy Louie in a second because it was because it was the same. It, it came about the same way. Uh, there was a new, ch- uh, very high end Chinese restaurant down in Tribeca called 66, and it was opened by Jean Georges, and it was Jean Georges doing upscale Chinese, and it was like the hot restaurant in New York. Early Sex and the City episodes revolved uh, around 66. 100%. Yeah. Like, it was it, and it was these big tables, and it was models and celebrities, whatever. But, of course, you know, we were a few blocks away from, like, maybe the greatest Chinese food in America, yeah. <laughs> in Chinatown, literally yeah. blocks away. Um, and it was kind of absurd. And Graydon went there one night, and there's 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 some conspiracy theories about this because I think the restaurant claimed that he tried to smoke at his table, and they were like, well, you can't smoke in here because there's a, a law against it now, and he stormed out. Or we'll get to Graydon's but, bad behavior yes, at restaurants. Yes, it's legendary, yes. and we'll get to that. And, and I don't I don't know the truth, you know, that maybe they didn't <laughs> know who he was and he had to wait for his table. I Whatever. For whatever reason, he called me down to his office and said, and said, let's have Adrian come. Like, this is the hot spot. Let's have Adrian come in and do it. And uh, literally, I mean, and for anyone listening out there, just Google Adrian Gill 66 Vanity yeah. Fair. And, and mm-hmm. you will do you, – it, it is – New York had never seen something like this. I mean, <laughs> that restaurant was closed within 18 months or, t- or two years. Like, this is all anyone was talking about when 66 came up. Mm-hmm. He, he called – they had foie gras dumplings. And I'll remember because he said it at the table. We were sitting there. And they had foie gras dumplings, which was just a take on a classic dumpling with with foie gras inside. And he said these taste like fishy liver filled condoms. Yeah, that that's that's <laughs> just a, a an image you never want to yeah. have in your head. Hopefully, listener, you uh, yes. certainly will uh, will forget that. At the I, you, Dana, I mean, 
was he fair? Was this a fa- like he absolutely buried this restaurant? Lem- Lou- so Lemmy so Louis. L- L- Lemmy Louis, and, and I think again this was something. Graydon was in Paris. Everyone was like, "Oh, you must go to Lemmy Louis. You must go to." Absolutely and, annoying to a magazine editor. Be told by many people to go well, somewhere. Yes, the I'm most sure. annoying I'm thing sure. a magazine editor yes, can be heard. I'm sure. And so he <laughs> went there. And and for those that don't know what Lemmy Louis is, it's a small restaurant. It's not a big restaurant, but it's this sort of beloved. Uh, it's not a, it's not bistro fair. I mean, it's, uh, would you call it a bistro? I mean. Well, I think it's a brasserie. A brasserie. Maybe. That's right. That's I, right. I, I think, I don't know. I, 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 I think, no, I think you're right. And it was just, you know, giant slabs of foie gras on, yeah. on big pieces of brioche and just, you know, roasted meats and, 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 and I have eaten there and it's great. But, but what Graydon saw was that this was not a restaurant. This was not a restaurant for the French. This mm. was a restaurant for rich tourists, mostly to, Americans. Mostly Americans. Yeah. To the, it's like the the set that wears like those Vilberkin um, uh, bathing suits on yachts. <laughs> um, it, it was it was like the Epcot Center of restaurants for rich Americans to come and just spend tons of. It's really expensive. Like it, it yeah. was really expensive at the time, and 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 he just thought it was it was a game like it wasn't it wasn't worth the praise he just thought it was this is something different let's send adrian and and adrian just went there and and had a similar experience and didn't he thought it had no soul but he he did call this beloved parisian mm-hmm. uh, brasserie the worst restaurant in the world and, and that quote traveled around the world mm-hmm. um, because that was Sort of at the beginning of of the internet because I think that was like two thousand six, two thousand seven. Yeah, it was when, definitely in the era of Eater. I yes, think Eater yeah, yeah. Uh, and early Eater, which is yeah. much more dishy and gossipy, yeah, yeah. kind of l- latched onto it. Yeah, and and you know what? I should throw this out that you know, unfortunately, Adrian died in two thousand sixteen mm-hmm. of cancer, and it was it was really awful, and it it happened very quickly, but go out and buy one of his books you know he has a lot of collections of his food writing yeah. and and you will you will see he's like the velvet underground of food writing he really and his book about sobriety too is is yeah, memoir, amazing is absolutely a great read yeah. and, and kind of a classic of this day in yeah. age um we'll talk I, I do need to get to great in and keep now yeah. beef we'll get to that yep. but for, uh, let's get one more food article that you maybe edited or a profile of a chef or anything food related in Vanity Fair that comes to mind that you feel is worth mentioning? You know what's funny is, and this is going to sound odd because Graydon went on to open restaurants. He wasn't big on food writing Mm -hmm. in the magazine. He was more interested in the lifestyle of food. He was yeah. more interested in the design of restaurants. I mean, you mentioned Keith McNally, and every time you know, I would look look back through the archives of Vanity Fair a lot for in the writing of this book. And whenever you know, there is the story on Pastis, the opening of Pastis, like a giant spread with photographs. When Balthazar opened, there was a giant spread, and it was. It was, you know, it was shot like an interior magazine. It wasn't shot like a food magazine. There were no pictures of food. There was just pictures of the place and 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 Keith's aesthetic. Um, you know, Adrian was sort of it. We didn't write a lot about food. Observation here. It makes sense. And it feels like Vanity Fair being a, uh, a publication that always looked was two to six years ahead of the yeah. curve on a lot of things. And clearly this was a tell for the future of the celebrity chef. Yes. You clearly were covering food as an event, food as yes. culture. Yes. So that's an observation. But I, I think I want to get into this interesting Keith McNally grading card yeah. dynamic yeah. because – 
you set it up like, yes, like Grady and Carter decided to cover McNally's restaurants with like as opening yeah. as like these big openings. Yeah. So when it like clearly it was almost like direct line from McNally to the page of Andy's. Yes. I'm not going to yeah. call it a puff piece because it, you certainly were tapping into the zeitgeist. They were, they were puff pieces. All right. Well, sure. All right. You're, thank <laughs> but you. by the way, I, I happen to think Keith McNally is a okay. genius and maybe one of the greatest restaurateurs no, great. in, in New York great. history. We, the, the rumor, the gossip, the page six is that Keith, uh, that Graydon uh, did not show up for a reservation. Yeah. yeah. Or maybe it's not even gossip. This might have been right from Keith's crazy Instagram. So the, I guess like Graydon in his head is like, I gave this guy so much press. Like I should be able to bail on restaurants and not be called out. Okay. So this, like, set this up, Dave, because you got you the, I'm going to tell you, because it's biblical, you know, <laughs> it's biblical. And and by the way, I do think, I, I think that is true. I think Graydon, uh, you know, he, he has this uh, news site, it's a newsletter and sort of an online magazine called Airmail. And sort of maybe, this is maybe about a year ago this happened, mm-hmm. or, you know, it was the pandemic was, it was looking like it was getting over and, mm-hmm. and Graydon wanted to throw a big lunch for his staff. And so he had them call... Um, which restaurant? Did it, it was Morandi. It was Morandi. That's yeah, right. Over on Seventh Avenue, yeah. which makes sense. It's it's near the airmail office, and he booked a big table. I think for fourteen mm-hmm. or eighteen or something like that for lunch at twelve thirty, and twelve thirty came and they they you know cleared out this area for it was Graydon Carter. It was a VIP friend of Keith's, and they cleared it out. They probably I think Keith later said they brought in more staff to take care of this one table. Um, Graydon was a big spender. It was going to be a big a uh, big lunch, and and. Not only did Graydon not show up, but nobody showed up. And I, I and Keith went very public uh, slash nuclear on Instagram. Absolutely where, where nuclear. Keith has, yeah. Keith has found an audience. Um, I'm sure that's true. And I think I I've asked a few airmail people, and they're like, <laughs> "Oh God, that I don't want to talk about it." Uh. Um, uh, but I think clearly something happened. Like they had to cancel. Maybe someone had COVID and somebody forgot to call the restaurant and say, mm. we have to cancel. We're so, so sorry. But I think it goes farther back. And, you know, Keith McNally and Brian McNally were were they were like the the Liam and Noel Gallagher yeah. of the restaurant business. And their fights are sort of famous. They they came to America around the same time. They worked uh, at one fifth together. Brian was a charming bartender. Mm-hmm. Keith was a waiter. Keith was a little more quiet. Brian was the older brother. Keith was the younger brother. They went off and opened the Odeon. I think it was eighty two or eighty three. By the way, inventing Tribeca, like inventing turning, Tribeca, bringing SNL cast members uh, down and, there for and rap Warhol parties. Warhol and like yeah, and, Warhol. and it really was the middle of nowhere. Like yeah. if you were down there at night. It was scary. Um, And they sort of invented, created this neighborhood out of nothing. So Brian and Keith, they're brothers. They fought all the time. You know, they started this successful business. But then, you know, I think Brian was the charming one who was out front where Keith started, you know, thought Brian was was wasn't carrying his weight and Keith was was doing everything and and whatever. They they had a split, a business split. And. And Brian went off and created a number of successful restaurants over the years, and Keith did too. They mm. both did very, very well. And there were would be periods where they wouldn't speak for years, and and they were just famously these this it, it was just those this mm. br- younger brother older brother relationship that would just never work. Mm. Like it's mm. just it will follow them through life. Um, Brian was a very good friend of Graydon's. Very good friend. They were very, very close. I mean, and he, he gave got you the job. I mean, hundred percent. Like, yeah, a, no. was an and absolute... I and I love Brian, and Brian yeah. is still a close friend of mine. He's I think he's in 
Lisbon, Portugal, opening some restaurants right now. Yeah, um, which I'm sort of envious. Yeah, of. you got to get there. <laughs> but so 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 there is this dynamic between Keith and Brian, and then and then you throw in a third party. And I think it's just a weird dynamic because Graydon did become very friendly with Keith. They lived, you know, a block away in the West Village. Um, they had kids the same age, and they were very close for a number of years. I remember they they would spend Christmas together, yeah. and and I don't know what happened. I don't like. I can't tell you if there was one incident where where that but I think it was just a lot of like it's the Brian Keith grade and it's the Brian it goes back to the Brian one Keith wrinkle thing. though yeah. to bring in here yeah. is the Waverly Inn yes and you write about this in Delatant really yeah. really well and I think anyone who's been in New York for a while knows about the Waverly Inn so this is Graydon Carter's restaurant yeah. and so it, and I'd like to hear a little bit about how the Waverly Inn factored into Condé Nast because yeah. You know, Graydon Carter, genius here, yeah. opens a restaurant and then can get the expense accounts and get yes. the corporate yes. accounts to do events here, yeah. padding his P&L yeah. and having a really nice business. Yeah. So, like, he's running the Waverly Inn. McNally is his competition in a sense. I mean, th- that might be an aside. But I, I, w- I think that business is – I think there's a lot of honor among thieves in that business. I don't Truth. think – I don't think the – you know, I don't think there is that kind of competition. Maybe, I mean, who knows? By the way, maybe Keith. You know, maybe Keith Jealousy. did feel a little threatened. Just, I, 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 I think Pastis. Uh, you know, before before it closed, there's his brand was maybe a little down. Maybe. My my theory. This is just maybe. me talking. But let, let's get back to the Waverly Inn because I think it's as important institution in New York City yes. restaurant history last twenty years. Yes. What was the Waverly Inn like when it opened? What is the Waverly Inn? To give a little background, the Waverly Inn was this tiny little sort of old-fashioned restaurant on the corner of Bank Street and and Waverly in the West Village. And it was kind of like it was like a little mom and pop restaurant that would serve, you know, overcooked st- like it wasn't mm-hmm. it wasn't a thing. You know, it was kind of beloved, but you would go eat there and kind of be disappointed. But it was a beautiful space. Incredible real estate. Yeah, I mean, like like just on this corner, just ivy-covered. Yeah. And and you walk in and it just felt like old New York. And, you know, Graydon has an aesthetic. Like he has a real aesthetic that he brought to the magazine, that he brought brings to his homes, to the cars he drives. You know, it's a very curated, it's very specifically Graydon. It's a, it's, it's a bit of mid-century. It's a bit of jazz age. It's a, you know, it's yeah. this sort of pastiche of different eras. Um, and, and it sort of comes together in this weird thing. And it's you, definitely 60 to 80 years older oh, than now. Oh, 100%. <laughs> like, and it, and that's, and it's this, it's, it's like his, yes, it, it's a very, if anyone who knows him or, or was a fan of the magazine or whatever, you can see it. You can see it in the fonts he uses. You can see it in just everything. It's like his, that's his. Watch his, Kid Stays in the Picture. Yeah, Kid Stays, I mean, yes. that's it yeah, yeah, right there. Yeah, exactly. So he lived a few doors down from the Waverly, and I think the Waverly shut down, and he thought, well, geez, maybe I should buy it. And um, so he he took on some partners. I know I think Sean McPherson, who's another big restaurateur and yeah. hotelier in New York, uh, and Eric Good, another sort of legendary New York sort of club owner and restaurateur and and uh, hotelier. Um, he took this place over and he just made this, you know, it was a beautiful little old antique looking room with fireplaces and marble m- marble mantelpieces. And he just redid it with this aesthetic so that you would walk in there and it really felt like you were walking into the 1940s, like from the music to even like 
you know, those little, you know, instead of champagne flutes, those little, I, I don't even know what they're called. But coops, those, right? Coops, that's yeah, right. They yeah. were coops. Yeah. Like, it was just every little touch was so great and, and, and you know, the red leather banquettes. And, and, and an extraordinarily hard reservation. It, it was not just, I think it was impossible in, in the early days. I, it was so days. hard because there yeah. was an unpublished phone number. Most of the reservations went through Graydon's office and mm-hmm. through his assistant. Um, I think eventually they had to, the poor assistant was just inundated. But it was, it became overnight the most exclusive restaurant in New York and the hottest ticket. And it wasn't about the food. The food was kind of great, but it was, it wasn't, it wasn't refined. It wasn't high dining. It wasn't refined, but it was a decent cut of steak that was going to cost well you 75 bucks. Shots enough to pop. That's exactly went, right. Like, super Tuscan. That's exactly right. 18 That's Manhattan. That's exactly right. And, and a great <laughs> wine list that was really outrageously yeah. expensive. I mean, had I not had a Condé Nast expensive account at that point, <laughs> There was no way I could have eaten there twice twice a week, yeah. and I think I did. But it became an extension of the magazine. Mm-hmm. It wasn't related to the magazine at all, um, but it became an extension of the magazine. And I can't describe – you know, you would walk in there and it would be – you know, this table would just be – you know, I'm making up names, but it might as well have been Brad Pitt, Tom Cruise. Like it was, mm-hmm. and then on the other side, uh, Anna Winter, and mm-hmm. you know, and Vogue started sh- throwing dinners there, and and Vanity Fair started throwing all our events there, all our book parties. Genius. He would, he would shut just, it down, just yeah, shutting he, it down, but would, also paying full freight. Yes, but I mean, but you know, it was, and and I don't know, I I don't, you know, I know Graydon well enough. You know, you're not going to become rich off one restaurant. You know what I mean? The guys yeah. that, that get rich off restaurants have 10 or, or, or yeah. sell it off to, to some private equity company. I don't think that was what he got into it for. I think it was really just his his obsession with aesthetic. Yeah, totally. And, um, but it was, it was you know, the amount of plastic with Condé Nast written on it that was thrown down <laughs> at the end of meals at that place on a daily a daily basis was, was kind of outrageous. And – you know, not only did we do our events there, but fashion advertisers would rent it out to do events, and we would do, and it just became. I mean, it's it's a brand. It's, it's all brand. about the yeah. brand yeah. of what you were doing, and yeah. and having an offline yeah. event. Yeah. Uh, but but think about like and and you know advertisers. You know, I remember Graydon always saying advertisers wanted to be in Vanity Fair, not because they felt like they had to, but because they wanted to and they wanted to be part of this world. And they wanted to get reservations at the restaurant. So they would spend more dollars advertising in the Mad. I mean, you you watch episodes of Mad Men. I mean, it goes back to the 50s and 60s when these, you know, execs from Tulsa come into town but have the big pockets. They want to go to a Waverly in style place. That's right. That's right. Yeah. It's part of the media business. Well, and it's also to go back to, to Adrian, it was like, you know, a restaurant isn't necessarily about the food. And he would always say, if it's just about the food and you sit there with whoever you're with and all you're doing is ooing and eyeing and talking about the food, he said, you're eating dinner with the wrong people. Hmm. That's not what a restaurant is about. That's so interesting. Yeah. I, lo- I mean, I don't agree. I-, I know. I know. I mean, fully yeah. disagree, hard yeah. disagree. Yeah. I think food is at the center of our lives, but yeah. I see it. Of yeah. course I see it. Like. Yeah. You know, food is secondary. You want to talk about it's it's the experience. You know, I want to talk. You don't want to like no think exactly. About this. And I'll like like uh, like last night I I ate at Red Farm in the West yeah. Village, which I adore. And I had oh R I P. Well, I'd, uh, I had forgotten, I had forgotten that he died. Uh, Eddie Glass. And I remember the first time uh, Eddie Schoenfeld, and he died yeah. jan- just in January. 
I remember taking my son there. My son's now 12, and I think at that point he was four or something. And this big bear of a man with red glasses was so kind to mm-hmm. my son at four years old and my daughter, who's a few years older. And every time we went back there, he remembered them. And my kids were like, where's that? Like, yeah. And they were like, hey, where's yeah. the guy with the red glasses? And I was like, oh, Jesus. And it's like you realize you realize just the whole experience is all part of eating out and dining. And, Dana, I agree with you. I, yeah. I think it's not about like what's in the Instagram yeah. frame on your plate. They're, yeah. You're dining. And, yeah. and anyone who knows restaurants yeah. or goes to restaurants frequently yeah. that want hospitality. Yes. Yeah. By the way, the food has to be good. The food can't be bad. Unquestionably. Yeah. 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 Well, speaking of food, I, I want to segue. You you are uh, a food writer uh, as well as, you know, well, you're, you're giving kind me this of, look. Like, yeah. I want to talk about a story that you wrote for Airmail. And, and I'll just like say briefly before we wrap that uh, Dilettante is just a yeah. fantastic book. Oh, and so sweet. Thank I'm, you. I'm just a big fan of the way you are, are so candid but also colorful about yeah. the way uh, this crazy life has unfolded yeah. of yours. Yeah. But like into the current times, yeah. um, you wrote – uh, wrote for Airmail, which is Graydon Carter, uh, his new publication or new-ish publication yeah. newsletter. You write about Noma. Noma yeah. was yeah. here yeah. Uh, in New York for a week. Yeah. We don't really need to get into like Renee getting COVID. Renee was yeah, up yeah, yeah. COVID and could yeah. show up. There's a little bit of controversy. Yeah. But you went to this meal. And, and so what are you seeing now with this Noma meal that you maybe are interested in or are you surprised by? Yeah. And and was it good? Was the food good? Because you just mentioned the food needs to be good. I, so I'll tell you, you know, so I am, I, I, boy, do I wish I was a food writer. It would be so much fun, <laughs> but I think also so much work and I would probably gain <laughs> 200 pounds in the first year because I would just it's, do, um, uh, but, but Graydon shot me a text a few, maybe a month ago or six weeks ago and he said, hey, do you want to go review this Noma pop-up in Brooklyn next week? Uh, some our, our usual writer couldn't do it or had co- like something like that, and uh, you know I've never reviewed a restaurant before. I've never written publicly about food except for in my book, mm. uh, and I just immediately responded yes. Yeah, I was like yeah, I do. <laughs> um, so I I went I uh, took my misses and we went and I sort of I, I you know I remember the first thing I thought was oh Adrian went to Noma and I remember. Years ago, a decade ago, Adrian had had gone to Copenhagen and we were on the phone and, and Adrian and I were on the phone, if not daily, at least once a week for two hours just giggling and talking it's about the fun. world. That's the fun it, part of being editor. Well, that, being was what, that was what an editor did for it's, a long time. Like, I talked to my writers. Yeah, yeah. I, I love talking to yeah, writers on the phone. And Absolutely. It's, and it's like and, – and writing is a lonely sure business. Is. You're yeah. sitting alone in front of a computer. And I remember I said, oh, how was Noma? He was reviewing Noma for The Times. And he said, I thought it was brilliant. I thought it was, I thought it was great. I really did. And I remember saying, I said, well, it it looks, you know, was it pretentious, whatever? He said, no, he said, not any more pretentious than any of these other places. He said, but I, it was, he said, it was a beautiful room. So the food was extraordinary. Uh, I had a, I had a one. So I, so that's a little bit of the backstory. And, and I sort of, when I said yes to doing this review, it was A, thinking back to Adrian's story and B, I thought, you know what? I'm going to AA Gill this shit. I'm going to go and I'm going to, as, as you know, to honor Adrian oh, and I everything I learned from him, I am going to do an AA Gill type of review of this. And whether I love it or I hate it, that's what I'm going to do. Yeah. Um, and We're not talking about microgreens and tweezers. We're talking no. about the vibe and w- the content and just everything. But the food also, like the yeah. food, the food had to be good. And 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 uh, and I love love good food. So so we went. Um, I thought it was great. 
I really mm-hmm. do. Like, I kind of, part of me wanted to hate it. Yeah. Part of me wanted to be able, you know, to, to come up with my version of fishy liver-filled condom to, to <laughs> have Adrian up in heaven looking down on me smiling. But the food was pretty damn good. Mm-hmm. And... And then the other side of it, which was like I was expecting, I was like, well, okay, the food might be great, but this will be pretentious and silly, and maybe I can sort of trash them for that, and and if that if that's true, um, and it wasn't, and and I know that set like looking at it from the outside and walking to that room and seeing the surface, it do, it does look like it could be sort of satire for a film of like here's a. You know, here's a, a eyeball in a muscle, but mm-hmm. it's really a you know or, or whatever. They were they were super cool people. Oh God, and, no, I love and, Noma. It, and you know what? Listen, it's it's a it, you know would could someone walk in there and look at these plates and be like, that's pretentious and silly? Maybe it's also really damn creative. I've spoken at the Mad know? Symposium in Copenhagen yeah. and, and interviewed Renea several times. Yeah. I, I've never dined at Noma to be honest. So yeah. I can't just say I love yeah. Noma. But what I was trying to say is Noma, um, you know, really does have a holistic approach yes. to the entire food. Yeah, like you know the some of the ants covering ants. Yes. Is, it gets a little overblown. But I think if you're serious about food, you'll you'll look beyond that. I and, think so. And yeah. certainly, um, respect by, by the way, it. every restaurant has gimmicks. You know, Taco you Bell has a pizza. You know, dude, what I, mean? I tried like, ordering it recently, you, you and there's it. They're out yeah, of it. Yeah. They're like in my yeah. town. I tried ordering the pizza. Yeah. They're out yeah. of it. They're I mean, like it. like everyone's got a gimmick. You know, it's I the, the Waverly with the with the eight hundred dollar truffles on the mac and cheese, or like whatever. Everyone's got a gimmick. They were really lovely, and you know, it's a reminder that that you know, cults aren't usually started by a cult leader. Cults are started by the true believers who come later. You know what I mean? And and I think that's – if Noma is a sort of pretentious food cult to some, it's not Noma's fault. I agree. They just, they just serve wonderfully creative food and, and they were really, really lovely human beings. Mm-hmm. And they didn't – you know, they didn't come and explain – how things were going to work, and and you know, and I remember when when Adrian and I did that sixty six review, he, he he opened the piece by saying, "I hate it when they tell you what's going to happen." And the waitress at sixty six approached us and said, "Let me tell you how this works." Mm-hmm. And, and he said, "Oh, what? I look at the menu, I order, and you bring it." Like oh, yeah. like it was, um, <laughs> and and I didn't have that experience at Noma. I had a really yeah good time. Um, I want to wrap and talk about some of your non Vanity Fair non airmail work. Yeah. You're working on a TV. Serious, and you—you you actually, we were talking before we went on air. Yeah, you. There's a chef character at the center of it. Well, so I, so it's it's. I have a movie. I'm I'm literally just about done. I was looking. I was getting samples of fonts for the closing credits yesterday. Wow. And there's a little bit of CGI left to do. Um, I, my best friend, writing partner, producing partner is partner is uh, an actor named Paul Bettany, mm-hmm. and who I actually write about in the book because he started a brawl at the Waverly. Yeah, that um, was my reference. I'm glad you brought us back to the Paul, Paul Bettany brawl. But yeah, yeah, Paul Bettany, great actor. The, the Bettany brawl. Probably a fun best friend to have, Paul Oh, he's the, he's the loveliest human being yeah. in the world. I adore, adore him. Um, but we, I, we found ourselves in quarantine in, mm-hmm. in April of 2020. I was actually at my mother's beach house. She was in Florida out in Amagansett. He was at his country house in Vermont. And I, at the time, was was split up with my wife, but I took her and, and my kids out to the beach to get out of the city. And so we were quarantined in the same house. And he was like, this is hilarious. Mm. Let's write this script right now. And I was like, no, I really don't want to do that. Oh this gosh. is horrible. Um, so we, we wrote a heavily fictionalized romantic comedy set in quarantine um, 
very, very loosely based on my life. But I, I wanted the the wife character, the ex-wife character to I, I wanted the the me-ish character that Paul ends up playing, which is which isn't really me and and mm. you know composite. Sort of, it's a we'll composite call, we'll like call. Paul and I kind of, yeah, but not yeah. really. You know, he's a musician. Mm-hmm. Um but so uh uh, so I wanted to have a rival. I wanted to have a love rival. I wanted to have the the ex-wife's new boyfriend show up, and then the husband show up, and it have this be this you know kind of kind of mad scene. And I was like Israeli chef. I was like really hot Israeli chef. And so we wrote him as an Israeli chef. Um, you know, kind of like, you know, kind of a little silly and a little over mm-hmm. the top. But I was like, there is nothing hotter in the world right now than than an Israeli chef. Like that is so it. Like, great. like culturally, like what yeah. would have maybe been a rock star 30 years ago yeah. or, or whatever. It's like Israeli chef is it. like a cut, <laughs> gorgeous Israeli chef who yeah. just makes beautiful food yeah. and flies fish in from overseas and whatever. And so that's the. And give zero fucks. Yeah, and so it gives zero fucks. And so yeah. that was, but it's, but was also kind of like we didn't want someone you hated and he ends up becoming a good guy yeah, of course and, um but that was that was our intention fun and then we found a guy who my my dreams of a, a, a israeli chef character died when we found this sort of this actor named staz nair who was actually half indian half russian from mm-hmm. london and he was just so perfectly the part so we had to he yeah, tweaked the cuisine a little bit. Isn't, yes, we had to. I had, right. to. I had to change the kind of fish he was cooking from from a Mediterranean sea bass to something different. Something, What's the yeah. film called? The film is called Harvest Moon. Cool. Um, after the Neil Young song, yeah, right. It sort of plays a part in in the arc of the film. Did you clear that, the song? We cleared the song. Uh, we cl- we didn't have we're not Paul Bettany money right there. No 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 I'm we're joking. not we're not using the actual song. In the Why movie. would you? That's bad. It is the arc is a young boy who's going to play the song for his Zoom talent show at the end of the movie. I love it. This is lighthearted. Yeah. This is yeah. this is sweet. It sounds it's, sincere. We, and sweet. we tried to write like uh, we were like let's just try to write something super mainstream with sweet. a happy ending. So Dana, we ask all guests on the Taste Podcast if you could write uh, a dream cookbook or food yeah. book project without the burden of of a budget, meaning you'd have unlimited money, similar yeah. to your Condé Nast days, and unlimited time, meaning yeah. you don't have a deadline. What would that book project be? I know exactly what it would be. I would want to write, you know, the, the, every cuisine has like its famous book. You know what I mean? Like the, I, I have so many of them at home, I can't even think what they mm-hmm. are now, but there's so many famous uh, uh, cookbooks about, you know, French cuisine, whatever. Oh, yeah. I find, and I, I cook mo- almost every night. If I'm not out at a restaurant, I cook almost every night. I, I sadly live very close to Italy, so I spend way too much money on, yeah. on going there and buying beautiful fish and meats and pastas. Asian food, to me, has always been impenetrable, like very difficult to figure out. And I've gotten better at it. I have the bamboo steamers on my walk, and I can cook fish in it beautifully. And I can, I can approximate— Great choice. I can approximate— you know, Asian food, but, but I can make scallion pancakes from scratch. In fact, I just did the other day and, and you know, and, and I've gotten okay. Yeah. But the, the flavors, the, the it's such a mystery to me, mm-hmm. like fish sauce. Like I don't know what to do with fish sauce. I would love to write. I would go to Asia for like three years and, and you know, Vietnam, the different provinces of China – um, Taiwan, Taiwanese food's amazing. Yeah. Um, that I would try to unlock that mystery 
uh, of Asian food. It sounds like you're a super fan of the cuisine. So I, I feel like love this it. is uh, yeah. would be a tribute, a loving tribute to the cuisine yeah. and, and yeah. a super fan. Well, yeah. Dana Brown, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It was so so kind. Of, it was so nice to get out of the house yeah. and actually be in person. For it was once. great to see you. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks so much. The Taste Podcast is hosted by me, Matt Rodbard. It's produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening. <laughs>